0: Today on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy.
1: While the Bible does not prohibit a Christian from drinking, all things considered, I believe the dangers of using alcohol far outweigh the potential benefits. And therefore, I voluntarily abstain. And I believe that's good for me, and I commend that to you. I present to your conscience the benefits of voluntary abstinence.
0: In almost every area of life it's possible to have too much of a good thing and wine or strong drink is certainly no exception. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCoursey continues a discussion about this relevant topic and shares timeless principles from proverbs for making wise decisions about the role of alcohol in our lives. If you missed the first segment of this lesson and would like to catch up, you can listen on your own time at ktt.org. Search for the series titled That Makes Good Sense. Now, Continuing his message, Dying for a Drink, here's Pastor Philip.
1: What I want to show you here quickly is that the book of Proverbs, when it comes to the issue of wine, and I believe that's fermented wine, and I'll try and prove that to you in a minute. When it comes to fermented wine, that is intoxicating wine, the book of Proverbs sees it both as a blessing and a curse. Look at Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the firstfruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The promise there is that if you obey God and be a good steward of your possessions, God will bless you. And one of the evidence of, the, of his blessing would be that your vats would be filled with new wine seems to be a blessing in that context. But then we go back over to Proverbs 23 and Proverbs 20. Proverbs 20 verse 1 will do us, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Here we see the danger of alcohol, and here we see it being presented as a curse, something that makes a fool and a fighter out of a man. And the book of Proverbs does not anywhere explicitly tell me to either see it exclusively as a blessing or see it exclusively as a curse. And so it raises a question, doesn't it? I think it's a question you want me to answer. It's a question I have sought to answer across my Christian life, and it's this Is wine or alcoholic drinks a blessing to be enjoyed or a curse to be avoided? Let me put it in a more simple form and bring it into the New Testament context. Should a Christian drink or should a Christian not drink? Here's where I'm at. My study of Scripture has led me to a position I call voluntary abstinence. When I talk about voluntary abstinence, here's what I'm saying. Here's the two ideas behind it. Nowhere does the Bible outrightly condemn drinking or command Christians not to drink wine, no were. But secondly, while the Bible does not prohibit a Christian from drinking, all things considered, I believe the dangers of using alcohol far outweigh the potential benefits. And therefore, I voluntarily abstain. And I believe that's good for me. I commend that to my family and I commend that to you. I don't mandate it, but I would advocate and present to your conscience the benefits of voluntary abstinence. I have come to a position that I cannot mandate the prohibition of alcoholic beverages in the life of the Christian because I cannot find a justification in the biblical text. I'm in danger when I finish this point. Some of you are going away and think, well, the pastor is just highlighting how good it is to drink. And I wanted to get to a point to balance that very quickly with drinking alcohol is a very dangerous game. And it's fraught with all kinds of problems and temptations and we'll get there. So again, don't draw your conclusions until I draw all of mine. And then we'll look to at the decision surrounding wine. I'm going to give you four reasons why I believe that voluntary abstinence is the best thing for you and your family. But all I'm going to do is commend it to you. I can't command it. Despite the many warnings about the dangers of wine, you and I need to know that drinking is not totally forbidden in Scripture. In fact, this might surprise us. In some occasions, it's even commended. Not commanded, but commended. Now, I took you to Proverbs 3. Let's go back to it. Do We see an example of this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. "'Honor the Lord with your possessions "'and with the firstfruits of all your increase, "'so your barns will be filled with plenty "'and your vats will overflow with new wine.'" Here, the book of Proverbs presents the drinking of wine. Here, it's being presented in a favorable light that God will bless the people of Israel with new wine upon the condition that they honor him with the first fruits of the harvest. Wine, in this case, is not a symbol of evil and not sourced in hell. Fermented wine, in this case, is a symbol of God's goodness sourced in heaven. Israel was not only a land flowing with milk and honey, but you remember they brought great bunches of grapes from Estrelon. It was a land fertile for vineyards and wineries. In fact, have you ever thought about the fact that in John 15, God describes himself as a vine dresser, working a vineyard, producing wine, Spiritual? This is certainly a symbol and it's certainly an issue that God is not embarrassed to identify himself with. The point I'm making here is that the creator of life will reward the true worshiper, according to Proverbs 3, verses nine and 10, by sustaining his life with bread and wine, which was part of the staple diet of the Israelite. What we have here is a case and a context where the making and the taking of fermented wine was good and to be enjoyed as a gift from a good and happy God, the wider context of God's word reinforces that thought. Let me just take you to a few verses that will show you that the the delight surrounding wine from a biblical perspective. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 27 and verse 28. Isaac is blessing Jacob here. Here's what we read. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. May God give you grain and wine. Deuteronomy 7 verse 13. We're in a context where Moses is is, uh, reminding the chosen people of Israel of their covenant obligations to God. Disobedience will be rewarded with punishment. Uh, Obedience will be rewarded with blessing. I want you to see here Deuteronomy 7 verse 13, and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the land, your grain and your new wine and the oil and the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land which he swore to your fathers to give. Let's go to the Psalm, uh, Psalm 104, verse 14. Unless you can make an argument that the wine in these verses in question is grape juice, here we have a series of verses that seem to connecting wine, even fermented wine, as a blessing from God and a gift from heaven. Psalm 104, verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. One other verse in the Old Testament would be Ecclesiastes chapter nine and verse seven. Ecclesiastes nine, verse seven. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Just think about that, both here in Ecclesiastes and in Psalm 104, there is a delight surrounding the use, the proper and proportionate use of wine. Here's what you need to note. Considering what we've just read in the Old Testament, the Jew nor the Christian is an ascetic. That is, we don't believe that the material world is evil in and of itself. It has certainly been cursed. We're certainly dealing with things in terms of um, the deterioration of the earth because of the fall of Adam and the judgment of God, but we do not believe that material things in and of themselves are evil. We do not believe as Christians that holiness is promoted by denying ourselves material pleasures. In fact, if you go over to Colossians chapter two, this same kind of theology was affecting the Colossians. And they were being told, you know what? There's certain things you're not meant to touch, taste, or handle. It was an early form of Gnosticism, which had a a, a subcategory of asceticism. And they were being told, you know what? If you want to be a full Christian, a mature believer, don't eat certain things, don't drink certain things. And Paul says, what's that got to do? with your spiritual life in Jesus Christ. All that stuff makes null and void the cross, cuts across the doctrine of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the imputed righteousness of Christ, the benefits and fruits of our union with Jesus Christ. Paul is saying you do not make yourself holy by abstaining from some material things. And I think we just got to bear that in mind because when you come to the Old and New Testament, you've got to understand their worldview. They were moral materialists. They understood that God has given us all things to enjoy, even the fruit of the vine. And it is not evil. And so here we see the delight surrounding wine. Let me take that further a little bit and then we'll kind of wrap up. As I've kind of gathered that all together, I think there are two uses of wine predominantly speaking in the Bible. One, there was a recreational use and two, there was a remedial use. Wine had a recreational use. It was part of one's enjoyment of life and the receiving of God's good benefits. We read that in Psalm 104, verse 14 to 15, of how wine will gladden the heart of man. And what you need to understand there that that text is telling us that wine was given by God to enhance man's enjoyment of life as a gift from him. In a sense, it was an elixir of life. There seems to be a recreational use of wine. Added to that, you mustn't forget and I mustn't overlook the fact that the wedding at Canaan, Jesus made everybody cheer when he turned the water into wine, fermented wine. In John chapter 2 and verse 10, here's what you read. You know the story of how they'd been drinking. They ran out of wine. The Lord Jesus fills a number of vessels with water, turns it into wine. They start to drink that and it's good wine. And so the master of the house comes to Jesus and says, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. I want you to notice the verb there, well drunk. I've consulted a number of uh, writers on this. Daniel Wallace is a Greek scholar from Dallas Theological Seminary. The verb there translated well drunk, he says is almost always used of getting drunk. Now here's the point. This party was a party where there was free flowing fermented wine. This is a context. We're not told if they were drunk. We're just told this is a context where people were drinking and they could get drunk. We're in a context where, you know, the wine is flowing. They have drunk well. That's the verb. The Greek words that are used here in John chapter two are used in like Ephesians 5 verse 18 for wine that has the potential of making you drunk. The same word that's used in Ephesians 5 18, be not drunk with wine wherein is access is the same word that's used for the wine in John chapter two verse 10. So it seems to me that uh, wine had a recreational use. In the Old and New Testament, in fact, let me just reinforce a couple of things on on this matter of, of drinking fermented wine. I'll give you one other argument that I think you and I need to think about. Should you believe that Christians are mandated not to drink, then I have a question for you as I had a question for myself. Why then were Christians able to get drunk at the Lord's table at Corinth, bringing the judgment of God upon that church where some of them were taken prematurely in death because that was such an offense to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. We know that in those days they ate in a communal context and at the end of that communal meal, they shared bread and wine as a remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know historically that the Passover meal involved fermented wine, there were four cups. And although the readings of Luke and Mark don't tell us about wine in the Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples partook of, it talks about the cup. And we just have to assume, because history bears the sight that in that cup at the last supper was fermented wine. That's what the Jews drink at Passover. And here we have in Corinth a situation where Christians got drunk. How did they get drunk if the wine that Christians can only drink is grape juice? Unfermented, non-intoxicating beverage. Although it's a bad example, it's a good example of the fact that Christians and Jews drank fermented wine in recreational social contexts. Here's the second use and we're done. Wine had a remedial use. If you study the word of God, you'll see that wine was often used as a tonic or as an anesthetic. You remember in 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, Paul tells Timothy, use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Timothy was told to take wine for his stomach because wine aids the digestive tract. And in the ancient world, it was a kind of laxative. In Proverbs 31, verse 6, we're told, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. This seems to indicate, says Norman Geisler, that strong drink was used as a sedative or painkiller for the dying and that wine was also used to calm the nerves of those who were deeply bereaved or in deep distress. When you're in pain, you might readily take from your doctor Valium to ease your pain. A few centuries back, would you have been willing to drink rum or whiskey to ease your pain? because it has that ability. And in the Bible, it was used that way at times. In fact, in 2 Samuel 16, verse two, we're told that wine would refresh those who became exhausted in the desert. And then one final example is Luke ten thirty four. The good Samaritan poured oil and wine on the wounds of the man that was beaten, right? Helped heal his wounds. Point is simply this. Wine, fermented wine in the Old and New Testament was used as a laxative, a painkiller, a stimulant, a refreshment, and a form of cure for those who were ill. Contrary to what I had been taught, contrary to popular fundamentalist opinion, there is no outright censorship of the use of intoxicating wine in the Bible. I'll argue that you still shouldn't touch it, but I can tell you with an honest face that the Bible tells you you can't drink it. Here's a couple of implications. Nowhere in the Old and the New Testament is the believer told to abstain from all wine at all times. The warnings are directed to strong drink and the access of use of alcoholic beverages. Number two, nowhere in the New Testament do we find the practice that not drinking wine was a condition for church membership or church leadership. We must therefore be careful when it comes to tests of fellowship, not to build a wall where Christ has a door. Number three, and this is a serious reflection, to state that drinking alcoholic wine on any occasion is a sin, it seems to me implicates the Lord Jesus Christ, with sin. And I would not want to be wearing those shoes, taking that stand. Jesus both drank and made for the wedding guests at Canaan fermented wine. The New Testament didn't have any rules and regulations about it either in terms of membership. And history has example after example of Christians drinking wine moderately. Did you know that Martin Luther even converted part of his monastery into a brewery? In fact, it is said of the Reformation, he says this, I did nothing, the Word did it all. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word, otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept and drank Wittenberg beer with Philip and Amsdorf, the Word of God weakened them all. You say, pastor, you've got to get to the next part, the danger, because I know all about it. I am a slave to alcohol. This drug is ruining my life, my marriage, my children. And God has awakened my conscience. It's not only doing that. It has me because it is a sin. It has me estranged from God, separated from him. And if I was to die this morning, I would not inherit the kingdom of heaven. My friend, I want you to know that the same Christ who can turn water into wine can turn sinners into saints. He can take away your thirst for that. He can break the back of its addiction. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead can explode in your life in an act of new birth when God causes you to be born again. As you come to the cross, repent of your sin, not just your alcoholism, but all your sin and come to Jesus Christ as the only Savior, God will forgive your sin and the power of the Holy Spirit will transform your heart and transform your home and Jesus Christ will give you living water and you'll never thirst again. There's a friend of mine working in Rhodesia, Africa for CEF. His name is Alan Graham. Alan Graham was caught in the slavery of alcoholism. He staggered out of a drinking club one night, not far from where I lived, into a tent where a gospel mission was taking place. He was in a bit of a stupor, but when he sobered up the next morning, he said to himself, I've got to go back tomorrow night and really listen to what that guy was saying. The preacher was a Pentecostal pastor from Belfast, led him to faith in Jesus Christ. When he came into work where he and I worked, he told the guys that he had got saved and he had given up alcohol and he was, gonna, he was gonna live a whole different way. And the guys all said, never. And they started laying bets. We'll give them three days, we'll give them four days, five days, six days, seven days. And if you went into the toilets in the factory, all the guys were laying their bets on how long Alan would live the good life. <laughs> well, nobody collected because it was the real deal and God save them. Give them a thirst and hunger for righteousness. He's serving Jesus Christ today among the African kids of Rhodesia, seeking in that steaming heat in that impoverished country to win them to Jesus Christ. He's bringing the life-giving water of the gospel to that desert, and that can happen to you.
0: When we turn our lives over to the Lord, he can transform our thoughts even our actions in remarkable ways. You're listening to Know the Truth, a message from Philip DeCourcy called Dying for a Drink. Today's broadcast concludes just the first half of Philip's discussion about the uses and abuses of alcohol. Be sure to join us when we come back tomorrow to hear more about the advantages of voluntary abstinence. You'll also find resources related to our study when you go online to ktt.org. Well, it makes our day when we hear from listeners about how God has used these daily programs to touch their lives. Perhaps you've been listening for some time now and you've never taken the time to call or send us an email and let us know. Why not take time out to do that today? We'd love to hear from you. Call 888-644-8811. And then if you're able, we'd also appreciate your financial support as well. Know the Truth is supported by the generous gifts of our listeners and every bit helps us to reach people with the truth of God's word. Today, when you give a donation of any amount or sign up to give monthly as a Truth Ambassador, we'll send you a helpful resource as our way of saying thanks. It's a book by Sam Storms titled, A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin and Three Things He'll Never Do. This book addresses anxiety over sin by reminding believers of the good news of the gospel and helps believers find freedom, joy, and peace in knowing what God has done and will never do with their sin through the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus. You're invited to request your copy when you contact us with your donation. It's easy to give online at ktt.org. Or you can speak with one of our ministry volunteers when you call 888-644-8811. Also, if you've never reached out before, we'd like to welcome you with a free devotional from Pastor Philip. Learn more at ktt.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to come back tomorrow for more Bible teaching from Philip DeCorsi. Don't miss part two, of an important message called "Dying for a Drink, Wednesday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free.